Welcome to the Gospel Ministry of Exchange Church. Thank you for connecting with us for our Bible talk today, and please feel free to share these talks with others as well. It's our desire to connect people to Jesus and grow people in Jesus. To find out more about us, please visit our website, www.exchangechurch.org.au. Well, let's pray now. Okay, opening prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the eternal truths that guide us day by day. We thank you for the living word, Jesus Christ, your precious Son, and the sureness of his presence in our lives. Teach us how to turn to you so that your thoughts become our thoughts and your ways become our ways. Open our hearts and minds to listen and to obey to your precious word. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord. In Jesus' name we pray this prayer. Amen. Before I start as part of my sermon, I'd like to ask you this question. What defines you? What would be your answer if this question was asked about you? What defines you? Perhaps you have never ever thought about this question. So let's look at the first overhead in terms of what defines you. Does your career define you? Now, I wanted to get your attention, so I know there's no you know, mavericks in this, in this group. There are mavericks, but no maverick pilots, I should say. Okay, so, so what defines you in terms of your career? You know, because the first conversation we have, and that's equal opportunity, so I put a lady up there as well. So what defines you in terms of when people ask you, the first thing is, I get this often, hello, how are you? My name is Bill, my name is Jim. The following question is, what do you do? You know, I facetiously, I say things like, I cook, which I do. Oh, I'm a cleaner, which I do clean at home, but I, they get baffled. They think that's my profession, but that's not my profession. That's what I do. Just to throw people off kilter, I tend to say those things. But isn't it interesting that as soon as you decide what career you're in, people slot you up in terms of a hierarchy or where you are in society, and that is totally wrong from a Christian point of view. But nevertheless, we as Christians define ourselves with our career as well sometimes. There's nothing wrong in having aspirations and things like that, but that's not what we should define ourselves. The next uh, slide is, do you define yourself from a point of business success? And some of you would know this. This is the man who owns Virgin Airlines and everything else in the world. But do we define ourselves as from a business success? And nothing wrong in being successful. But that's not how we should define ourselves as Christians as well. So the next one, please. Your hobbies, you know. Any mountain climbers here? But we all have hobbies. And it's interesting, a lot of people do define themselves as hobbies in terms of what they do. You know, particularly people who are retired because it's time to take up hobbies. So hobbies become very predominant in their lives as well. A lot of my friends, for instance, when they retire, because I'm a retiree, talk about their hobbies. It may be golf, it may be woodwork, it may be a whole range of things, but they tend to define themselves as their hobbies. And the other thing I hear about retirees is, we are so busy now. We are busy with their hobbies. My response to some of my friends, I said, you had a long time practicing retirement when you were working. 
you know. So now they say they're very busy. Okay, so the next one is your political affiliation. So you are two lovely brothers in brotherly love there. And some people define themselves with their political affiliations. You know, I'm a strong, rusted-on Labour supporter. Or I might be, you know, a Liberal supporter. Um, I don't want to put up the Greens up here because I don't like them. Okay? <laughs> so so that, that's the reason they're not there. Okay? So your political affiliation. So I'm, I'm being very honest. You know, you have political affiliation. So there's the one bloke looking over the other fellow's shoulder. There you go. Brotherly love. That's just a little sense of humor that I have. So it may be your political affiliations. You are rusted on such and such party and so on. But as a Christian, that's not what defines us. So the next one, please. Does that define you, your ministry? You want to get to the pinnacle of being whatever denomination you are. You know, you want to be the Pope of that denomination. For ex-Catholics, I apologize, I don't mean to be rude to you, but many people define their ministry. And even ministry shouldn't define you. It is only a ministry is to serve the body of Christ. But it's not to define you. It's not a hierarchy of of ladders that we climb. John Piper, the great Christian author, actually wrote a book called We Are Not Professional Brothers, meaning that a minister is not a professional. He is called by God to serve, and so are we. So ministry doesn't define us as well. The next one, please. This is the last one. Oh, sorry, second last one. Our political causes, and that's becoming very popular today. We are defined by some of the political causes that we belong to. And Christians are now going down that path as well, you know, by religious causes. So let's look at the next one. So sometimes religious causes can define us as well. Now, nothing wrong in any of the things I've shown you, but they don't define us as Christians. These are people who have a very rightful cause, which is about saving the unborn child, which I totally and 100% agree, but it doesn't define who I am as a Christian. And the last one is our family. A family can define us as well because we can be so absorbed in our family that they can become little idols as well. You know, And so we've got to be careful that as much as we love fa- our family, they shouldn't define us in terms of who we are as a Christian as well. I have a very good Christian brother who one day said to me, if my children don't go to heaven, I don't think I want to be there. I was really shocked by that particular statement. Right? His children are not following God. And they're all adults now, in their 30s. They've been, he's brought them up, he's told them what the gospel is, but he cannot be the guardian of their salvation. Right? Because ultimately, individuals have to make individual choices. So family can be another thing that can define us in terms of our own children's successes, where they are in society, a whole range of things. That's not what defines us. So let's get back to what is really, really important. That's why we read the reading today, and I'm going to hone in on um, Corinthians 15, but not entirely in Corinthians 15. But I want to read the verse where Paul says, I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. Paul wrote to the Corinthian churches, and he said this, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins. Now, that's a very important statement, he says, they're of first importance. Anything of first importance is important. If you were out on a boat in the sea and your dinghy was sinking, the first importance was to save your life, right? 
You wouldn't be thinking about anything else. You'd be thinking, how do I save myself from the disaster that I've been? Similarly, here Paul is saying the same thing, but much more important. He's saying, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins. That's the first importance that God is talking about. The Bible tells us while there are many callings and many different areas of service in the kingdom of God, one transient truth, one truth that rises above all the other truths should motivate our work and affect every part of who we are. And that truth is Christ died for our sins. Otherwise, why are we here? We might as well join Rotary or Lions or have a good time elsewhere. But we are here because Christ died for my sin and for your sin. If there's anything in life that we should be passionate about, it's the gospel, the good news. And the good news is that Christ died for our sins. Not just sharing it with others, but also being personally passionate about it. Thinking about it, rejoicing on it, and allowing it to shape our worldview. The gospel is for everyday living. It's not just a few statements. It has to completely imbue our lives. It has to completely take over our lives. As a Christian, only one thing can be of first importance to each of us, and that is the gospel. How easy it is to forget that the most important truth is the easiest to forget. i read that again. The most important truth is the easiest to forget. D.A. Carson's, the Christian pastor and theologian, has this to say. He said, I fear that the cross, without ever being disowned, is constantly in danger of being dismissed from the central place it must enjoy by relatively peripheral insights that take on, so, take on far too much weight. Whatever, whenever the periphery is in danger of displacing the center, we are not far removed from idolatry. Think of that when he says, whenever the periphery is in danger of displacing the center, we are not far removed from idolatry. The center is the cross. So let's look at what the peripheries that he's talking about. He's talking about peripheries such as, and these are all good things, peripheries like healing and miracles, gifts of the Holy Spirit, a godly marriage, worship music, missions, evangelism. The list is endless. Some Christians have built their lives around these issues. So these issues are important and should not be neglected or ignored. But neither should they become the center of our very Christian being. All of these things are important. Don't get me wrong. Healings are important. Miracles are important. The gifts of the Spirit are important. A godly marriage is to be cherished. Worship music is important. Missions, evangelism. But sometimes these take over and they don't come back to those one central importance. So we can be going down this path where all the peripheries become important, but the centrality of the cross is forgotten. And my message today is to look at the centrality of the cross. It is important to keep coming back to the cross of Calvary in absolute gratitude and thanksgiving, but also with a view as to what can we, as a body of believers, learn and appropriate from this monumental sacrifice of one individual, one solitary individual who was God and who died on behalf of us while we were yet sinners. That is the gospel in a nutshell. So our motivation, my motivation, your motivation should be about the cross of Jesus Christ. Nothing else. Nothing else should be our motivation. Healings, miracles, all the other stuff are secondary peripheral issues. But our motivation is the cross of Jesus Christ and what was done on that cross for you and for me. So gratitude is a very, very important thing in life.
And I'm seeing gratitude slipping away sometimes, even in churches. This morning, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I want to share seven positive principles we can appropriate as a result of Jesus Christ's death and suffering on the cross. You know most of this stuff. This is just a reminder, a refresher in terms of what it means to be a Christian. The first principle or the first learning that we can learn from the cross is any sin is forgivable. Any sin is forgivable. In Luke 23, 24, Jesus has this to say to them. Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. Then they true dice to divide his clothes. Okay. Here was the Christ dying on the cross and these men were dividing his clothes by throwing dice. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This is an amazing statement which reveals the heart of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. I don't think I could ever say that. You know, I could say it sometimes, but to say it in the way Christ said it, it was just amazing. Amidst all his pain and suffering and guilt, forgiveness was available. Amidst the suffering that Christ went through for you and me, forgiveness was available. All it takes is true repentance of sin and acceptance. Coming to Christ is not moving up to the altar and saying a few words and that's it. You know, it's a lifelong journey of sanctification. Of course, we make the initial step of accepting Jesus Christ. But true repentance is your walk with God and how far you are walking with God on a regular basis. So that acceptance and personal sacrifice of Jesus Christ made on the cross, he made it for behalf of all men. Grace is free, but grace is not cheap. Grace grace costs Christ everything, but is free to us. It costs him everything, but it's free to us. So grace is not cheap, right? So there's a form of evangelism which offers cheap grace. And that's you get Christians on the wrong path when you start with cheap grace. Grace is available to everyone, but it costs Christ his own life. It costs the Father to see his Son dying on the cross of Calvary for your sin and for my sin. So when we come to church, it's not a gathering of people. It's not an organization. It's a group of people focused on the Christ, on the cross and what, what was done on the cross. So God's love extends to all mankind. So in John 3.16, again a very well-known verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Think about that statement and think about it and meditate on God's word. God's word, if you only meditate on one verse a week, that's enough. Let it go deep into your hearts. You know, intellectual Christianity, there's a place for that, but it's not going to sustain you. It has to go from your heart to your soul, to your heart, you know, from your head to your heart. And sometimes the longest journey is from your head to your heart. That's the longest journey. And so I've got a lot of friends who are Christian intellectuals, but they struggle with their faith because the conviction hasn't convicted them, right? They are intellectually smart people, and it is important to read God's Word and study God's Word, but the real understanding comes when it penetrates your heart and it changes your life and you become Christ-like. That's our whole purpose, is to center ourselves on the cross and ultimately and gradually become Christ-like. Christianity, past and present, is full of sinners saved by grace. 
Look at what the Apostle Paul has to say. As a former persecutor of Christians, considered himself as a chief of all sinners, but after his conversion to Christ, served as the greatest defender of Christianity and died for his faith. After Christ, the one person that encouraged me a great deal is to read the letters, the epistles, and to read Romans, and to see that this man's conversion on the road to Damascus was so real. And that's the, the reality of Christianity. It must grip our souls, not just our minds. So we must become Christ-like in everything that we do, because our conversion is real. So John Newton, the famous hymn writer, reflected on God's amazing grace in a song and in action. From being a slave trader, he became an advocate for the abolition of slavery. An amazing conversion. But the most amazing conversion is the conversion of you and me. Right? We've heard some amazing conversions in this church as well. Last week I was amazed with the conversion that our brother said last week. And it's a great conversion by Jared. And that's to be appreciated and to, to cherish. But greater than that conversion is our own personal conversion. Right? You know, even last week, I was saying to a friend of mine, I don't have that sort of a conversion. I grew up in a Christian family, but Christ was real to me through my mom and dad. And you know, the greatest thing that Christ has done for me in all my years now is his keeping grace. He's kept me from many troublesome paths that I could have gone down, but he kept me. And that was my, my experience, you know. I was saying to Janet, I don't have a conversion. I wish I could come up here and say, you know, I was a chainsaw massacre and now I'm a Christian. Or I was a hell's angels. I was a head of the common charis or whatever they call themselves. But I'm just Jim Pascal. Nothing much to say. Right? (laughs) But, But it's not quite like that, is it? Because God has kept me. He kept me through a lot of trials and tribulations, which I won't go through. But he has kept me. Every time I look back, I look at the hand of God on my life when things could have gone wrong. You know, he kept me through university where I was under the, the tutelage of very agnostic lecturers who I admired, clever men. But on the other hand, they weren't Christians and I could have gone off the rails there because they had such persuasive intellects. But that wasn't enough. You know, I was silly enough even in my university days to tell my lovely pastor at the time there are no absolutes. Right? What a silly thing to say. And I was a Christian because I was influenced by a lot of thinking. And then I had to one day come back after my dad died and we went to the church on a regular basis. And I went to Pastor Jack Simmons and I said, Pastor, you know, I said a silly thing saying there are no absolutes. I now believe in Christ totally. You know, you've got to repent. That's a repentance prayer. You know, just in a conversation. Because we can go down paths. See, if I went down the path of no absolutes, where would I be today? You know, I could have been a chainsaw massacre person. I don't know. You know. So our conversion to Christ is a personal story. It has to become a personal story that we treasure above else. It's not someone else's testimony. We are encouraged by someone else's testimony. But our testimony is a personal story. I'm often reminded by Jesus' words when he said to me, and he says it to you, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before the Father. I really get convicted by that statement when I'm trying to evangelize or trying to talk to Christ and I'm saying, oh, I better not now and I shouldn't do this or got all the excuses under the word. And that verse came to me often. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before the Father. That's a great deny. I do not want to be denied before the Father. I want him to say, well done, good and faithful servant one day. And that's my prayer for myself and for all of you. So our story, our personal story, 
our personal story of conversion is shared by kings and queens, paupers, presidents, martyrs, and ordinary folk just like you and me. A story not to be embarrassed or fearful, but to tell it is a story worth telling. There's a hymn even. I can't remember it. It's, it's that old, old story. It's called something like that. But it's a story that's worth telling. You know, don't feel embarrassed by telling your story to your boss or to other people. I worked in academia for most of my life, and I was put down for my own beliefs. I had to prove myself in my own profession. But many a time, my, some of my closest friends would ridicule my Christianity. But sometimes I fell apart, sometimes I had to stand, but I tried my best, and that's all I could do. And I tried to live a life of witness. Not perfect, but I tried to live a life of witness. We need to reflect daily on what Christ has accomplished on our behalf and tell the story to others. The second point I want to make is we are saved by grace, not true works. We are getting what we deserve for what we did, but this man has done nothing wrong. That's in Luke 23, 41-43. This is the thief on the cross is saying this. We are getting what we deserve for what we did, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. This is one thief saying to the other thief, we did wrong, but here's a man who did nothing wrong and he's on the cross for, my, for our sake. And this is the same message the thief gives us. Here's a man who died. He did nothing wrong, but he died for you and me. So grace must always equal gratitude. Grace must always equal gratitude. Grace on God's part, gratitude on our part. Grace must always equal gratitude. Christ died for us while we are yet sinners. If you go away today and you don't remember anything, just remember this one phrase, Christ died for me while I was a sinner. Right? Christ died for me while I was a sinner. So grace enables us to see men and women the way God sees them, as all of his creation. There's no one in this room can say, you know, he's a greater sinner than I am, or I'm a greater sinner than he is. No, 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 we are all sinners. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, said this. He said, go for sinners and go for the worse. Right? Go for sinners and go for the worse. That's what William Booth said, because he knew what grace is about. He didn't put himself above, above people. He actually... A lot of his music was pub songs that he took out of the pubs and he turned them into Christian lyrics and he sang them outside the pubs so the people inside the pubs could recognize the songs outside the pub. And that's where he went for. He went for sinners and he went for the worst. So grace is demonstrated by the love we have for one another and also for the ones who are hard to love. It's not just for the love that we have for one another, but for the love that is hard to love people. I call them prickly people in my life. There are a lot of prickly people over the years which we have to love. And it's not easy sometimes. You know? But from the prickly people, we learn more about God's love than the ones that belong to my mutual admiration society. You know? and, and we don't want to be part of a mutual admiration society. We want to work with people that are hard to love sometimes. And there are a lot of people in and out of the church. But the love we have for one another, the world will know us as Christians. That's what the Word of God says. The love we have for one another, the world will know us as Christians. There's no point talking about ancient Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, and all these things people like to pontificate on. At the end of the day, Christ died for me while I was a sinner. Right? Christ's love is what it's all about we share. 
So the third point I want to make is family is the most important unit. Family is the most important unit to Christ, and it is to us. Right? So John 19.26, Jesus said this. So when Jesus saw his mother and the disciples whom he loved standing there, he said to his mother, Woman, look here is your son. What does it mean? I had to think very carefully about this, read commentaries, and I come to this conclusion when he said, Woman, look here is your son in John 19.26. Family from a Christian perspective needs to be seen in two ways. First, there's a family unit that you and I belong to. More and more of these units are becoming isolated from each other, and even within families, isolation and loneliness is become a commonplace. Isolation and loneliness is becoming a tremendous uh, place where people are very lonely. Again, Jared's not here today, but what did he say yesterday? It really got to me when he said, please pray for me, I need a friend. One friend. I need a friend. Right? Now that is true for a lot of people. You can be in a crowded room and you can be lonely. You know, you can walk into a room and feel very, very lonely. Yesterday, by mistake, my overheads are meant to go to Catstone and I went and sent it to my cousin in the UK. Now, my cousin's wife, because my cousin died about three months ago. And she came back to me. I haven't heard from that cat for a long time and this is what she said to me and this is meant to be I think she said this remember her husband Ivan just died I'm, I'm taking one day at a time Jim that's all I can do at the moment some days are worse than others loneliness is a major factor Ivan, Ivan renewed his passport last December as we wanted to go abroad this year possibly for the last time as his health wasn't too good well, I braved it and went on my own for a week. I'm glad I did it. The holiday was lovely, but I felt sad without him. I've got to, I've got to reply to that later. It only came late last night. I'm just thinking, you know, the current Surgeon General in America, I've got an article at home somewhere. He wrote a very good article this year. He said America is suffering from a pandemic of loneliness in society. It shouldn't be like that in a church, you know. I've heard people say in churches as well, nobody loves me in a church. Now, it's a two-way street, right? You've got to extend love too. It's not just about love me, love me, love me, right? That's not that, that's a taker mentality. You've got to be a giver and a taker. You've got to receive love and you've got to give love. So, But nevertheless, when we see this in families becoming dysfunctional. Often the core of the problem is that there's no responsibility towards each other. Right? In churches and out of churches, there's no responsibility towards each other. Husbands, wives, children all have responsibilities to each other. In this context of Christian community, Jesus said these words, Woman, look, here is your son. Right? He entrusted his mother to a body of believers, not just to John. John was a disciple that he loved, it says. But he entrusted his mother to his believers. And if you keep reading in the book of Acts and you read the story of how the apostles interacted with each other, they became a community of believers. And it was into this community that it was entrusted. Now, we are meant to be entrusted with people of different types in our society or in the church as well. The fundamental responsibilities towards each other and God's family cannot be neglected. There is a responsibility to our own families and to our own church family. We don't belong to an organization. We belong to the family of God. Big difference. 
you at work belong to an organization. I've worked for an organization. But when I come in this door, I've come into the family of God. So start by sharing in home care groups and do Christian life together. Home care groups are not just set up for your convenience. It is set up because it's the family of God coming together. I know people cannot make home care groups for different reasons, and some are very, very valid reasons. So this is not a guilt trip. But if you can, please, please participate in the family of God, because you cannot participate on a Sunday morning with 110 people here. You have to have that intimacy with a group of people that you can do life together, and you can share life together. Because then, you know, loneliness breaks down, problems break down, and we relate to each other in a much more intimate way. So we look out for the lonely and the needy in our church family. So that's what family is all about. The next point that God makes, that Christ makes is, faith will survive the worst times. Around three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Elah, Elah, lama sabatanichi, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is in Mark 15, verses 34. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is Christ saying to his own father. So what does it say this? This verse says, even Jesus went through a terrible time of doubt. It's, you know, it's not wrong to doubt. You know, as a Christian, you, know, you, you can't be this stoic Christian that's so one of God's chosen frozen, I call them. You know, they're so frozen in their belief and they're so frozen in their system that they, they, they run out of emotions. They've got nothing, no feelings at all. You know, that's not what it's about. You know, in a terrible time of doubt, we must come back to Christ and say, like the, like the man who says, Lord, I believe, save me from my unbelief. Right? So we come back and we ask God to save us from our unbelief. Nothing wrong in doubting. You know, I have doubts. You know, a long time my pastor told me this, Jim, you can, you're allowed to have doubts, but don't stay in your doubts. That's what I'm telling you here. Don't stay in your doubts. Overcome your doubt with faith in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit through reading of His Word. Encourage yourself in His Word when faced with life's trials and doubts. We will face doubts, we will face trials, but get back into God's Word and believe in the promises. So Jesus has said that He will never leave us nor forsake us. That's what Jesus says. Believe and act on this one promise. All things work together for those who love him, he says. You've got to stand on these promises, otherwise you'll be blown apart. Left, right, and asunder. You will keep in, and this was my favorite verse when I was working, and it still is today. It says, Isaiah 26, verses 3 and 4. You will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for in your heart the Lord is everlasting strength. You know, God will keep you in perfect peace if your mind is focused on Him and Him alone. Because otherwise, your mind will do tricks on you. You know, you will move into distractions, you will go into the miry clay, you will become negative, nobody loves me syndrome. You'll have a pity party all by yourself. So it's important that you keep perspective. And the perspective is to keep your eye focused on Jesus because you trust in Him. There's nothing else that you can trust on. It's, the fifth point I want to make is it's okay to excuse your hurts. It's okay to excuse your hurt. And in John 19:28, this is what Jesus said. After this, Jesus, realizing that by this time everything was completed, said, in order to fulfill the scriptures, I am thirsty. 
Jesus said, I am thirsty. This is the Son of God saying, I'm thirsty. So you can substitute, I am thirsty, with I'm angry, I feel violated, I'm abused, I'm mistreated, I'm hurting. Never deny your feelings. These are genuine feelings. You know, you can substitute, I'm thirsty, with I'm angry, violated, abused, mistreated, and hurting. Never deny your feelings. Recognize them and deal with them truthfully and constructively and from a biblical perspective. Always deal with your feelings from a biblical perspective. Your feelings can't run amok. They've got to be grounded in God's word. As a body of believers, you and I are the hands and feet of hearts of Jesus. We can replicate the kind words and works that Jesus did through our unique personalities by helping others. So as Christians, we shouldn't be hurting all alone. We should be the hands and feet of people that reach out. Because Jesus one day will ask us, Jesus one day will ask us, where were you when I was thirsty, hungry, tired, lonely, homeless? It's the same question our community will ask us. Where were Christians when we were thirsty, hungry, tired, homeless, and lonely? So we have a responsibility as a church and to our community as well. So what will our individual and corporate response be? There are many in this church who are doing good. And we should never tire of doing good, for in due season we will reap. But don't let it fall on the shoulders of a few people. We have to come together and help. You know, I've heard people say, you know, there's no ministry for me in that church or this church or that church and things like that. But they've never offered their services. So how would people know what you're capable of? And when people get asked, they read those types of people, when they ask, they often get overloaded and they can't do this, they can't do that. But, you know, we can do as much as we possibly can. You know, a pastor friend of mine, he was a very senior pastor, he's retired now, he said, I never ask a young mother with children for the first five years of their lives to do anything in the church. Now, how wise is that? He said, they've got enough to do. They've got to bring up their kids. They've got to care for their kids. And so we understand the seasons of life. But if you're an old retiree like me with time on my hands, I should be doing more. And I'm challenged by this myself. This I'm speaking to myself as well. You know, a lot of my friends say they're very busy. And again, when people ask me, are you busy, Jim? I said, no, I'm not that busy. I didn't retire to be busy. You know, I retired to be enjoying life and be relaxed and things like that. I paid my dues for 40 years. It's now my time, but not my time to be selfish about myself. It's my time wherever I can contribute as long as I can. There's less years behind me. There's, sorry, there's less years in front of me and more years behind me. And so I want to make the best of the few years that I have in front of me. I'm not going to fall over tomorrow, by the way. I tell my friends, my friends and my family in particular, you've got at least 120 years of me still. You know? And I, that's vengeance for my sons. You know? But I hope I live a long life. Okay? We can all hope, but Jesus knows when and when and where. The, the sixth question is, there's a time to let go. Luke 23:46. Jesus said this. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And after this, he breathed his last. There's a time to let go. Self-preservation is diametrically in opposition to the Bible injunction to die to self daily. Self-preservation is diametrically in opposition to the Bible injunction to die to self daily. We are called to die to self daily. We don't hear this often enough, but read the Bible. It's in there. 
There's a time to refocus and let go of our hurts and injustices. We need to forgive ourselves and get over ourselves. We must forgive ourselves and get over ourselves. If you're constantly meditating about yourself, you become very introverted and you can't share Christ. You can't see the problems ahead of you. You can't see the problems around you because you're so self-absorbed. There was a pastor and a young lady in the church who was always very self-absorbed and always wanting his time and always saying how bad life was with him, with her. And so he one day couldn't understand after counseling what he should do with this young lady. So he said to this young lady, come with me this afternoon. And she said, where? And he said, just come with me. And he took her on his hospital, hospital visitations. And he took her to the cancer wards, to the children's wards, to the hospice wards. You know, do the very serious cases. And she came away a changed person. There's always someone worse off than you and me. There's always someone worse off than you and me, no matter how bad our trials and tribulations are. So sometimes stop and think. Your trials and tribulations are important and no one's negating it and no one's minimizing it. But sometimes we need to get out of ourselves and think about others a little bit more, as Jesus did. Remember, all our troubles are only momentarily, it says in the Bible. Only for a moment we are pilgrims passing through what is a very brief life on our way to eternity. It's a very brief life, and we need to make use of that brief life in a positive way. So I encourage you, and I encourage myself, that we need to travel light. Traveling light is important. We need to get rid of hurts materialism, consumerism, selfish ambition, all can weigh us down. Regularly do a stock take. It's the end of the stock take season now. We've just finished the financial year and all the people working in companies know they do a stock take. But Christians need to do a stock take on a regular basis. What emotional baggage are we carrying? Ask, ask God and Christian friends to help us lighten the load. Don't struggle on your own. My final point I want to make is experience fulfillment by living a Christ-focused, faithful life. John 19.30 says, When he had received the sour wine, Jesus said, It is completed. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Even when he said he was thirsty, they gave him sour wine. When we truly identify with Christ's death on the cross and say with conviction, it's no longer I that live it, but Christ that lives in me, our attitude to life will take on a new focus. We too have died with Christ. It's a lifelong process with many failures and successes. That's what sanctification is about. It's not an instantaneous thing. But Jesus Christ, who has done a complete work in you and me, will see his work true and one day present us to the Father. So that's my hope, not my failures, not my successes, but Christ, who said he has done a complete work in me and in you, will see us true and take us one day to present us to the Father. Not what I've done, because grace is not that, you know, it's not works, it's what he's done. So it says here, he is the vine and we are the branches, so we need to stay in him, which is to stay in obedience to his word. Without him, we can do nothing, it says, but with him, we can do all things according to his will because he strengthens us daily. So in conclusion, what are the seven points that I've made? I'm not sure it's up there, but if the, in the seven points I made is any sin is forgivable, we are saved by grace, not, not through our works, the family is the most important unit, faith will survive, 
the worst times, it's okay to express your hurts. There's a time to let go of your hurts and experience fulfillment by living a Christ-focused, faithful life. So the Apostle Paul summed up all his teachings and preaching in one sentence. He said, I preach Christ crucified. If you, if you shrink all the things Paul said, he said this one thing, I preach Christ crucified. And that should be our message as well. We preach Christ crucified because he died for our sins. In saying so, Paul kept the cross at the center of his ministry. And his life, Paul, in saying this, Paul kept the cross at the center of his ministry and of his life. We must never let the, this important truth of the cross become the easiest to forget. We must never let the important truth of the cross become the easiest thing to forget. The cross is the good news of the gospel. Christ died for my sin and for your sin. So let us pray. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us your word to guide us and to protect us. Holy Spirit, help us to be true to your word by being obedient to it, by bringing our lives in line with it. May we never ever forget the cross and the message that it represents. Christ died for my sins. In Jesus' name, I pray this prayer for myself and for my brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen. We trust you have enjoyed our Bible talk from today. If you have any questions or comments from today's talk, please feel free to contact us at info at exchangechurch.org.au. Also, we love to welcome new people at Exchange Church in person. So consider yourself invited to be with us.